1975, Wayne and Ann Gordon moved to Lawndale neighborhood, which is one of a hundred neighborhoods in Chicagoland. At the time, Lawndale was the 15th poorest neighborhood in the United States. You couldn't buy a pair of shoes in Lawndale if you wanted to, and you couldn't even buy a Big Mac in Lawndale if you wanted to. So Wayne and Ann move into this apartment, which was over a storefront property, and Wayne hauls in a bench press and some barbells and opens the door for kind of a makeshift gym. And whoever wanted to come in could come in and work out. And so some dudes showed up. And they started working out. And as a result, Wayne started a Bible study. Wayne also taught high school there. And he also coached athletics. This Bible study became a church, which is now Lawndale Community Church. Now, as the church was developing and growing over the years, Coach, as he was called, they didn't call him Pastor Wayne, they called him Coach. So as the church was maturing and growing, Coach started asking questions like, how can we engage our community to influence our community to the glory of God? And they decided to open up a health care clinic, Lawndale Community Health Care Clinic. And God just blessed that. And 35 years later, Lawndale Community Church has a 1,000 families worshiping. 35 years later, this health care clinic has been touched by the hand of God, and over 100,000 patient visits occur there. Uh, Over the years, God's hand has just touched this congregation, and the Lawndale Community Development Corporation, a nonprofit, started, and 400... Apartments have been rehabbed, and over the years, God's hand has touched this congregation, and they started a uh, mortgage down payment assistance program. Local church did that. And uh, talk about influencing the community for Christ. In fact, I just spoke with uh, someone after first service who works for a 501c3 up in the Chicagoland area, and said, Randy, you would not believe what's going on up there even now. And we had some update in terms of how God's hand is continuing to bless this. It's interesting, you know, we see what's happening 35 years afterwards. But at the beginning, it was a man and a woman of God who were in love with Jesus and in love with one another, and they had a bench press and some barbells. (laughs) And that's what God did. That's what we call influence. 
engaging our world to influencing our world. And that's where we're going here between now and Thanksgiving. We're going to begin a series of messages called Engaged, Living Our Faith and Sharing Our Life. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to influence the world where God has put us. And what encourages me so much about Coach's story is how, you know, in that particular situation, it wasn't like a parachurch church planting organization sent them there. And I'm not knocking that approach because we support that approach. But what is just so amazing about that story is, as I said, how God uses uh, an ordinary individual who teaches high school and who's willing to haul some weights downstairs in an open storefront and open the doors and engage to influence. You see, God has put you somewhere. You are the pastor of a particular congregation, a particular flock. And nobody else can do what God has called you to do where you are. And when we begin to see life the way God wants us to see life, it really changes and transforms how we view where we are and how we view and see and understand uh, those of us in our context who are who are, you know, uh, uh, who are friendly to us and those in our context who are what I would call the EGR people, the extra grace required people, <laughs> right? And you know, who, you know who I'm talking about because you're thinking about them right now, <laughs> aren't you? And of course, nobody's thinking about you <laughs> or me, right? Uh-huh, of course. That's right. Well, I want us to talk about influencing our world where God has put us. And to do that, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's a familiar passage to many of us, and yet it's a necessary passage because it's a passage that challenges us to engage our world in order to influence our world. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You'll find that on page 683 of your Navy Blue Church Bibles, and um, it's also up on the screen. Jesus is speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew five thirteen through 16. This is the word of God. Now in these verses here, Jesus in discussing and challenging us to engage our world, to influence our world, we're going to see that he, we're going to see that he gives us a responsibility. And it's just that. 
We have the responsibility to be influencers of life. Um, we're not called to just kind of hunker down in our own little, you know, a walled commune here and kind of wait out till heaven comes. That's not, that's not the commissioning that Jesus has given us. He's called us to be influencers of life. We have that responsibility. We're going we're gonna to talk about that here shortly. While we do that, though, Jesus offers a risk. He, he says, you, I want you to be careful about something while you're fulfilling this responsibility, and we'll see what that risk is as well. And keeping in mind that there's always an end there's always an outcome. There's always a result. Uh, what, what defines a win as a result of our influence and engagement? And uh, oh, that's, that's going to be coming here at the end of our message. So track along with me. It's going to be three R's today. All right? Responsibility and risk and result. Speaking of responsibility, Jesus says that we do have this This commissioning here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. He's telling his followers that they have a primary identity. That you are not who you once were if you're a follower of Christ. You know, you were dead, now you're alive. There's to be something distinctive about you. You're to be different. Your identity And we've talked a lot about our primary identity, haven't we? Our primary identity is that we are in Christ. And that Christ lives and rules in and over us. And it's so important that we get this. You know, this idea of identity theft is such a scare in our culture today. Where, you know, someone steals your name and your personal information And they use it fraudulently. Ironically though, Christians are by definition people who have someone else's identity. See, we're called Christians because we've taken on the identity of Jesus Christ. We have been given an identity that we weren't born with. We've been given an identity which we did not earn the right to use. Nonetheless, we have been invited to empty the checking account of Jesus. We have been invited to use all of the benefits which our identity in Christ brings. And so, rather than identity theft, we must think of it as identity gift. An identity gift. This is who you are. And Jesus tells us, he says, you, you are salt. There is salt, and then there's that which is salted. You're different from this world, and don't ever, ever forget it. I'm thinking of uh, George Shultz, which was the former Secretary of State for our country. And he would bring in his ambassadors uh, and would check in with them. And they would have an appointment and the ambassador would get to see their boss, the Secretary of State for the United States. And at the conclusion of the meeting, George Shultz in his office would get up and he would go to this very ornate globe and he would always say to the ambassador, now before you leave, I want you to show me your country. So the ambassador would go, and invariably, Schultz said, they would go and they would spin the globe and they would point their finger to the country where they were stationed, except one ambassador. Schultz said, come show me your country. And that ambassador came, spun the globe around to the United States, pointed his finger right there in the United States, and said, that's my country. And Schultz said, don't you ever forget that. 
You go and you serve and you um, share their food and converse with them, but don't you ever forget who you are, you see. You have a primary identity. And I think that's what Jesus' words are to us. You are. He didn't say you must be salt. He doesn't say you have salt. He says, no, this is what you are. You are salt. You are light. Therefore, what you are determines what you do. What does salt do? What, what, what does salt, what did salt do 2,000 years ago? What was the primary purpose for salt 2,000 years ago? Curing meat, preserving meat. Yeah, they didn't have frigid air back then. Okay, they didn't have ice machines, you know, ice scoops. They didn't have, they didn't have flash frozen. They didn't have, they had salt. That's what they had. That was the deal. And meats would be butchered and then meats would be uh, cured, packed in salt, and then you could take it wherever you wanted to go. You know? You hear what Jesus is saying, not only about who we are, but Jesus is saying something about what this world is, right? What's he saying about this world? If we are the salt and they are the, here's what he is saying. Our world, left alone, will go the way of unrefrigerated raw meat. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying, which is counter to Everything that we've been taught since that period of time called the Enlightenment, which says that things are not, things are not decaying, things are getting better. And through technology and through uh, inventions, why, we're just going to keep improving and then, you know, sprinkle in some Darwinian evolution and things just get better and better. I mean, a hundred years ago, I mean, this philosophy was just, it was like we we're on the cusp of this, this century of innovation and, and through technological advances and knowledge and education, it's all just going to get better and better and better. And then World War I hit. And then the, the Great Depression hit, and then, and then World War II, and then the Holocaust, and, and, you know. Even recently, in 1990, America just kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Why? Well, it was the close of the Cold War, wasn't it? And finally, we had stared down the evil empire, the Soviet Union, and we were so afraid of, uh, you know, nuclear holocaust and mutually assured destruction, right? And Isn't that why we had those disaster drills in elementary school? Remember those? Where we would leave our classroom and go outside by the locker and put our hands over our heads like this, as if that was going to help. <laughs> Used to keep us busy, I think. You know, just sit tight. And... But 1990, that all went away. Huh. And we don't have to worry about nuclear holocaust anymore, do we? Of course we do. 9-11 hit. And, and I'll tell you, Lord willing, we eliminate all terrorism from our world. Something else will come up. Why? Because our world is broken. That's why. Since the fall. 
things break. Cars break. Homes have to be maintained. Marriages and relationships and friendships. I mean, what will happen if we don't take the time and the effort and the work to maintain a relationship? I was just speaking with uh, one of our elders uh, just right before I came in. And, and uh, Adam and Kirsten uh, uh, helped shepherd our uh, dynamic marriage ministry with Mike and Beth Wendling and and, and we talked about it just in the hallway, how even when a relation, even when you're, you're spiritually synchronized with your spouse, it takes work. It takes dating. It takes communication. It takes listening. I mean, even when you're spiritually synchronized, even when you're equally yoked, it takes work because left alone, relationships break. And we live in a world that left by itself, it will inevitably go the way of unrefrigerated raw meat. Because we live in a world that assumes the reality, excluding God from daily life. Where God is not active, and God is not involved, and God is not connected, and God is not engaged as far as the world goes. And And that's why there's a lot of rot in our world. Did you know that somewhere, somewhere in America right now, so says attorney David Opterbeck, somewhere in America right now, there's a little girl locked in a dog cage. A man will bind her with duct tape. The man will sexually abuse her while another takes pictures and videos. The men will then distribute these materials over a vast network of child pornographic file-sharing servers. Tens of thousands of other men will look at the pictures and videos and discuss them in chat rooms and demand more, and they will get more, much more. Opterbeck writes, I know this is true because I teach a course called Cybersecurity Law. See, that's, that's what I'm talking about regarding a world that will go the way of unrefrigerated raw meat. A New York Times reporter once visited a New Jersey high school classroom in which students discussing the case of a woman, she had found $1,000 and she turned it in. All 15 students said she was stupid. But the real shocker came after class when the reporter asked the teacher why she had not told the students they were wrong. And the teacher replied, hey, if I came from the position of what is right and wrong, then I'm not their counselor. (laughs) So you see, we live in a world that says a counselor is not one who counsels. That's the world. And I don't have to tell you about our world here in Champaign-Urbana. A world that you can read about on the front pages of the paper. A world that describes unrefrigerated raw meat problems. And a world that declares that what we need to do about these unrefrigerated raw meat problems is offer a solution which is tantamount to more unrefrigerated raw meat. 
And so we can just have a food fight of unrefrigerated raw meat. Problems, rotting problems being countered by rotting solutions. And in the midst of this rot, Jesus says, you are salt. You are salt. You are there to retard the rot of evil. If we pull out, evil takes over. This is why you're there where you are. I've heard people say, you know, well, if God created everything and God is all good, well, who created evil then? And that's a false question, by the way. It is. It, it, It rests on a faulty assumption, right? It does. That's like saying, who created cold? Who created cold? Cold is not a thing. Cold is merely the absence of heat. Cold is merely the absence of warmth. In the same way, evil is not a thing. Evil is the absence of holiness. Evil is the absence of righteousness. Evil is the absence of love and patience and goodness and beauty, you see. So if we pull out... Evil takes over. This is why Jesus says, you are the salt. You're the preservation agent. You are God's preservation agent. You say, why does he want this world preserved? Because he loves this world. He does. He loves this world. You, you, everybody in this room who's a Christian used to be a part of this world. We used to, we used to, we used to belong to the unrefrigerated raw meat tribe. Remember? Yeah. But you are salt, Jesus says. He's transformed you. And so as a result, because of your presence, conversations around the office need to be cleaner. Because of your presence, there needs to be a lot less complaining. Because of your presence, grace needs to be freer. Because of your presence, you're the glue that holds the office together. Because of your presence, the neighborhood's safer. Because of your presence, thy will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our responsibility. Okay? Our responsibility is to engage our world in order to influence our world. Does that make sense? Well, as we do that, I mean, Jesus uh, gives us a sobering Word here, a risk. There's a risk. And this risk comes in the form of a question in verse 13. He says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? There's a warning there, a caution that Jesus wants us to take. If the salt loses its salt. Now, what is all that about? How can salt lose its saltiness? Is Jesus giving us a chemistry lesson here? Is that any chemists around here? Huh? Really? Anybody studying chemistry? What well, how does that happen? So I thought, I mean, I'm a preacher. I know that salt's a pretty stable compound. So but how, how, is it, how is it that salt is able to lose its saltiness? And, and what we need to understand is that, well, we need to understand that phrase, loses its saltiness. Because literally, literally the phrase is, 
if the salt, and it's our word, if the salt, if the salt makes like a moron. Yeah, that's our Greek, that, that's, that's the word from which we get our word moron. Moron. It's right there in the Bible. I don't know why the New International Version or the other versions, they didn't ask me. But if the salt loses, if the salt plays the fool, if the salt makes like a moron, if we go to the cupboard and instead of pulling out Morton, it pulls out moron salt. <laughs> okay? Well, then it becomes useless. We no longer be having to say, now how, what, what, because they didn't produce salt like Morton produces salt back then. What, well, back then they didn't have that process and so salt was already somewhat impure, at least compared to today. And one scholar put it this way. I think it's fascinating. One scholar talked about how the salt of the Dead Sea would be contaminated by other minerals to the extent that the salt could be dissolved out and what was left was a white powdery substance which looked like salt and even felt like salt, but it was tasteless, you see. See, you could look like it and even feel like it, but you aren't it. The salt playing the fool. And really, we're going to talk about you know, what that looks like next week. Um, I have invited Todd Daly from Urbana Seminary to come and teach uh, really about the theme. Next Sunday, the theme is going to be the Christian atheist. How, how easy it is to live as if God doesn't exist. And Todd will be teaching in our services uh, next Sunday. And then after this service, uh, we're going to go to the garage and Todd's going to be, uh, we're going to be having kind of a, a lunch and learning uh, seminar uh, really on this topic, the Christian atheist. And, you know, this luncheon is going to be what kind of, you know how we say it, it's $5 or free. So sign up though. Uh, we want to know how many's coming and uh, uh, I want to encourage you. But how easy it is if we're not careful while we're assuming this responsibility to, uh, to engage and to influence how easy it is for us to play the fool. How do we play the fool? Well, we can do that through our inconsistent lifestyle, right? Here's a story about what that may look like. It's a story about a stressed out driver who is tailgating another car in traffic And when the other car didn't go through the yellow light, this tailgating driver was absolutely furious. The tailgating driver blasted the horn, screamed in frustration for not getting through the intersection. I'm not talking about anybody in this service, mind you. But while this tailgater was still in mid-rant, a very stern-looking police officer tapped on their side window. And the officer ordered the tailgating driver out of the car with their hands up. The driver was taken to the police station to be searched and fingerprinted and photographed and placed in a holding cell. After a few hours, the police officer approached the cell and opened the door. And the driver was escorted to the booking desk where their personals were collected and given to them. And then the police officer said, you know, I'm really sorry for the mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and gesturing rudely to the guy in front of you and cussing up a blue streak at him. And I wasn't going to do anything, but, but then I noticed that 
what would Jesus do window sticker. <laughs> I, I noticed the choose life license plate holder. I, and then I noticed the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker. And then I noticed the chrome plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. And so naturally, I just assumed you had stolen the car. That's what moron salt looks like. Okay? I'm just saying. We can play the fool inconsistently. We can also play the fool morally. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Someone once said, all things being equal, if you run with bad company, it'll corrupt you. It's like putting on a pair of white gloves, picking up mud and mixing it around in your hand. The mud never gets glovey. Never saw glovey mud in my life. But the gloves will get muddy. And Jesus puts it even more starkly in Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, plays the fool. How can it be made? You know, salt can preserve meat, but what can preserve salt? You know? How can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, the fertilizer pile. It's just thrown out. It's just garbage. Don't let that happen to you, Jesus says. Too much is at stake. And so, you know, there's this temptation then, okay, so, all right, I'm supposed to take this responsibility, but yet there's a risk with this, and so I don't want to be contaminated, so I'm just going to pull back, and we are just going to kind of hunker down. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, that's not an option either. That is not an option. You see, just as salt is no good if it plays the fool, light is no good if the candle is not consumed. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 14. And therein is a clue as to how we can maintain our fervent influence while we assume the responsibility taking care to manage the risk. Jesus says, a city on a hill. You are not called to just take your little... Bick by yourself and light it up. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that we're a city. We're a community. We, this is something that we do together. Together. We're a city. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So you're not by yourself. You're not. And neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. So there's no backing off here. Because the, a light on a candlestick, the light on the candlestick gives light by consuming itself. It serves the house because its life consists in dying. You, a light cannot radiate brightness and warmth without consuming itself. And isn't that what we see in Jesus on the cross? The greatest one, the holy one blazing forth from Calvary 
while his own life was violently consumed. You see. So, so Jesus says, light it up. Light it up. Light it up or it's lights out. You don't blaze brightly with the light that God has given you. And it's not your light, it's his. You don't produce it, you bear it. If we don't light it up, it's going to be lights out. Jesus says you are salt. You, literally, you and you alone are salt. You and you alone are light. No one else is going to do it. No one else. No other faith group. It's us. Bearing his light through us. Now you're going to light it up or not? You're going to bring joy to your office or not? You're going to stay in there in your marriage or not? You pull out, it gets cold. You pull out, it gets dark. You pull out, it starts to rot. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what, the the stakes are high. The, the, The difference is disintegration or celebration. Celebration, yeah, see, that's the, that's the end game. That's the goal, that's the result. That's why we take the risk in assuming the responsibility. Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, the goal of a beautiful burning candle is not so that this world will say, wow, pretty candle. That's not the goal. The goal is that the light will show this dark world the face of God so that they will say, awesome God. See, that's the goal. That's the goal of your, as Jesus says, good deeds. And, and again, the, the, the word good deeds literally is kala erga, beautiful deeds. Be- I don't know why this doesn't say beautiful. It just said good. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The goal of, of your beautiful work. The, see, this is why the arts matter. To God. This is why music matters. This is why, this is why beautiful poetry that's God-centered matters. This is why vocational excellence matters. This is why accounting matters. This is why a healthy marriage matters. That people may see the beauty, the beauty of it, and go, oh, wow, I want to know the God you worship. I want what you have, you see. God is the goal of our life's beauty. God is the goal of our vocational calling. God is the goal of our academics. God wants to use those that he has redeemed so that this rotting world will gush in gladness about him. God wants disintegration, to become preservation resulting in celebration. That's what God wants. And that's why you are where you are. 
engage in order to influence so that God gets the glory. Now, church, okay, what, what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, uh, it, looks, it looks like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. That love chapter of the Bible. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Does not rejoice in evil, but the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. That, that's what it looks like. Now, now, in preacher class, they would teach us to take that paragraph and really hit home on the application, okay? Especially when you're just about ready to have communion. And so you set the mirrors up and, and then you take out the word love and you put in your first name as you look into the mirror. Randy is patient. Randy is kind. Randy is not jealous. Randy is not conceited. Randy is not proud. And that's the application. That's the take home. That's what it looks like. Randy is not rude. Randy is not self-seeking. Randy uh, keeps no record of wrongs. Randy always protects, always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. Randy never fails. That's the, see, that's, the, that's the application on that. That's what that looks like. Does that make sense? Yeah? Well, I don't know about you, but when I go to this mirror, I mean, I really just had to memorize those lines to be able to say that. Because the fact of the matter is, church family, Randy's not always very patient. And yeah, I'm a minister, but I'm not always that kind. And uh, my ego has never needed steroids. (laughs) I know how to be proud and self-seeking and I don't always protect or hope or trust. And you know what? Sometimes Randy fails. So when I look at a mirror and I read stuff like that, why would I want to take communion? But then Jesus says, wait a minute. You are not your own identity. So I've given you my identity. See? I've given you my identity. And so because I've given you my identity, when you come to the table, you, you, you look at a mirror and it's not just love is patient or love is kind or Randy is patient. Here's how, here's how this needs to be. Christ in Randy is patient. Christ in Randy is kind. Christ in Randy does not envy. Christ in Randy does not boast. Christ in Randy is not proud or rude or self-seeking. Christ in Randy is not easily angered. Christ in Randy keeps no record of wrongs. Christ in Randy does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Christ in Randy always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Christ in Randy never fails. Jesus says, I want you to remember that. It's not you doing the engaging, it's me through you. And 
You don't do it perfectly. That's why I came. But now I'm going to reside in your heart, in your life, and in the community of the redeemed so that together you can be that hill that the world will see and the world will get curious and so that this disintegration will become celebration to the glory of our Father. Amen? (laughs) So I think I will have communion. And... uh, And when you look into that mirror, I hope you see Christ in you, the hope of glory.